You may be seated. And our sermon text again is Philippians 1, verses 3 through 11. Last week was Halloween. Some of you may know that Halloween is actually just a shortening of All Hallows' Eve, the evening before All Saints' Day. Hallows was an older term for saints. So Halloween, the even before All Hallows' Day, All Saints' Day. For some Protestant traditions, October 31st, Halloween, is also observed as Reformation Day. Why? Because uh, on All Hallows' Eve, October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther wrote and sent out publicly his 95 theses. And in these theses, Luther challenged several teachings and practices of the Roman Catholic Church of his time, which he viewed to be against God's word. Specifically, in the theses, he talks about uh, their teaching concerning penance, indulgences, and this idea of the saints having a treasury of merit that they might share with us. These 95 theses became widely disseminated and were a significant factor leading to what became the Protestant Reformation. Luther would go on to accept and herald the great truth of justification by faith alone. The idea that the righteousness that God requires from you is provided for you in Jesus, his son. That God offers us that righteousness freely in him, apart from our works or merits or deservings. We have only to receive Christ's gift by faith which is also his work in us. Recognizing scripture alone as the final authority in matters of faith and practice, the reformers set about the task of reforming the church around God's word and around his grace in Christ in the gospel. Nations and kingdoms throughout Europe embraced this Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, including the Church of England, from which Anglicans trace their historical development. In England, by the faithful efforts of men such as Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, Bishop Hugh Latimer, and Bishop Nicholas Ridley, the great truths of the Reformation that Luther began were received by the English church. Each of these men, I should note, heralded these truths at the cost of their lives. All three of them were burned at the stake when the Roman Catholic monarch Mary I ascended the throne for a brief interval of time. The English church then received the Reformation, as did other countries and national churches. And the English church, like the German church and other churches as well, also wanted to set apart a day to commemorate and give thanks to God for uh, creating and preserving this great 
reformation of the church around God's word that was happening. In fact, in the original 1662 Book of Common Prayer, there was an additional holiday that is not included in the green international edition that we have here. It was a day of thanksgiving with its own church service and liturgy appointed for it. It was removed from the international edition because it was judged to be a commemoration too specific to the history of the nation of England. And this prayer book that we use is intended to be used all across the English-speaking world in different countries. But there was originally an additional holiday for today's date, November the 5th. Remember, remember the 5th of November. That line may sound familiar to you, possibly because uh, in the past two decades, a movie came out that I can't unreservedly recommend uh, that has that line in it repeated by one of the characters. But some of you may be aware that this is the first line of a poem about this day. November 5th. And the poem runs as follows. Remember, remember the 5th of November. Gunpowder, treason, and plot. I see no reason why gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Guy Fox, Guy Fox, twas his intent to blow up the king and the parliament. Three score barrels of powder below poor old England to overthrow. By God's providence, he was catched with a dark lantern and burning match. Holler, boys, holler, boys, let the bells ring. Holler, boys, holler, boys, God save the king. November 5th, 1506, was the date that an attempt to blow up the king and parliament was foiled. What does this have to do with the Reformation? The conspirators were, in fact, Catholic extremists. They opposed the reformation of the English church and government that had happened in the 1500s, and their plan was to assassinate the Protestant king, James I, and his parliament, and replace him with a Catholic head of state. So the foiled attempt, the fact that Guy Fawkes was caught before it could be uh, performed, was viewed as an act of God's divine providence and a kind of divine intervention. And so Parliament declared November 5th as a day of thanksgiving for this deliverance and a new form of service and worship was added to the Book of Common Prayer for November the 5th. And this day became a day to give thanks, not only for the deliverance in itself, like any kind of extremist blowing up of anybody would be you know, give thanks to God that that didn't happen. But more particularly, it was a day to give thanks that God preserved the church in the same doctrine that it had received as a result of the Reformation. So while Lutherans have October 31st as their Reformation Day, Anglicans, I would posit, have November 5th as their Reformation Day. Now, To clarify, our service this morning is sadly not following the gunpowder treason service that was originally in that Book of Common Prayer. Nevertheless, as I prepared for this Sunday, I was struck by the resemblances that 
that even this Sunday's uh, proper collect, the prayer appointed, and readings had for this Anglican Reformation Day. The collect, which we will pray together later on, reads thus. Lord, we beseech thee to keep thy household, the church, in continual godliness, that through thy protection it may be free from all adversities and devoutly given to serve thee in good works. Preservation of the church, protection from adversities. And as we consider together this epistle reading, Philippians 1, verses 3 through 11, we will see how this text speaks to matters of great reformational truths that are every bit as relevant for you and I today as they were then. How does our passage begin? Verse 3. It begins with prayer. I thank my God. Later on in verse 9, Paul again prays, and this I pray. And before we go any farther, let's ask, let's just pause and notice, who is Paul praying to? My God. I thank my God. Later in verse 8, Paul will say, God is my witness. In verse 9, he transitions right into another prayer, which presumably is also addressed to God. God is the one to whom we pray. The Lord, Most High, is a prayer-hearing God. Psalm 65, verse 2, the psalmist says, O you who hear prayer, to you all flesh shall come. The Reformers teach, in accordance with Scripture, that prayer is a unique property of God alone, that he alone receives and hears our prayers. After all, he is the Lord, the author of all life, and the giver of every good thing. If we wish to call upon heavenly aid, who more proper to give it than him, the one who is the father of lights, from whom every gift comes? He is the fountain. He is the giver. He is the one who can give our requests. And God is glorified by our calling upon him in this way. The Lord himself commands in Psalm 50, verse 15, listen to what he says. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Call upon me in the day of trouble, the Lord says. Not upon angels, not upon departed saints. Call upon me. In the Bible, prayer is only ever directed to God alone because it is proper only to him alone. He is the infinite, eternal, almighty, all-knowing creator. He only knows the hearts and minds of all men. His spirit searches hearts. Our ways are open before him. And he hears us whenever and wherever we call. We are never given that assurance regarding an angel always hearing us or knowing our thoughts or or a saint always hearing us or knowing our thoughts. No, but we are given that for God. Part of the reasoning that Catholics and certain other traditions call upon saints is 
that they feel they'll have a better chance of having their prayers answered. It's as though some of these saints are more in the Lord's good graces, and thus maybe God won't listen to you, but he will listen to this other person, and then you pray to them and ask them essentially to pray for you. But does this not reflect a lack of trust in the fullness of God's love that has been poured upon us in Christ? Does not this betray a a lack of confidence in the goodness of God towards you in Christ, that he is for you, that his ears are open to you, that he loves you as his own child? You don't need any other mediator than the Lord Jesus himself. You don't need a mediator to get to your mediator, right? Go to him. Call upon him in the day of trouble and he will deliver you and you shall glorify him. Paul prays to God. What does he pray? Let's read on. We notice Paul begins with thanksgiving. I thank my God. That's the specific form his prayer takes in verse 3. And then in verses 9 through 11, he ends with petitions. Um, He says that I ask, I pray for these specific things to happen. So we have thanksgiving and we have petitions. Notice that Paul begins with thanksgiving. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul is not just praying to God in a somber, fearful way. No, as he prays, he is thanking God and he is abounding in joy as he is praying to God. Thanksgiving is where Paul begins. And it's where you and I have to begin as well. Paul thanks God. Why don't we? What leads to a lack of thanksgiving, a lack of a thankful heart? Anxiety, worry would be one. A huge one, right? Anxiety, worry, feeling like you're not secure, feeling like you're not in a good, okay state, that things might not go well for you. Hard to be thankful when that's where you're at. The great truth of the gospel in Christ is that at the deepest level, you are secure. At the deepest level, you are in a good, okay state. It is well with your soul because Christ has regarded your helpless estate and has shed his own blood for your soul. Paul can give thanks because of God's grace to him in Christ. He has this heart of thanksgiving because he, because he knows God has saved him, washed away his sins through faith in Christ, adopted him as his son in Christ, gave him his spirit to dwell within, and that God will lead him to eternal life. And we can give thanks for this as well. In place of anxiety and worry and a sense of insecurity, we can rest assured of God's unchangeable love for us in Christ. 
as believers in Jesus. By faith, we have been reconciled to God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and no one can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Your future, Christian, is secure. You've come to Christ, and so Christ's promise belongs to you. I will give you eternal life, and I will raise you up at the last day. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No power of hell, no scheme of man will ever pluck me from his hand. And Paul says here in Philippians 1 verse 6, I am sure of this. Notice he's sure. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. I am sure of that. The reformers emphasized the truth of this assurance that we have of our salvation in Christ such that thanksgiving and gratitude should be the marks of our lives because we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. We have been saved by grace apart from our works or our deservings. Right? Your works and your deservings, they did not get you in here. So why do you think it all depends on, on you? We are in God's good graces because of Jesus. We are justified, declared righteous before him. We are saved. And so we most certainly will be saved at the last day. So you, you can, you have permission to rejoice, to be thankful. And no matter how dark things get, to remember that there is a light at the end of the tunnel that has been promised to you. In verses 9 through 11, we come then to Paul's petition for the Philippians. He begins in verse 9, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. He goes on for a little while. Paul has these long sentences. You may have noticed as you read his letters. There's more to his prayer, but this is the really essential petition. And everything else is, I want this so that this will happen and this will happen. But this is the core, if you will, of the request right here. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Everything else is explaining purposes and reasons for why he is praying this. But that's it. Love and knowledge abounding. Not one or the other, but both. We might ask, why? why? Why doesn't he just say that your love may abound? Why bring this knowledge piece in? What does that have, in a sense, what does that have to do with anything, right? Isn't it all about love, right? Because Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, you may have heard something in there that kind of answers the question. What are you supposed to love God with? All your mind, Okay, so the mind is actually involved in love. The goal is not for us to kind of love blindly, but rather love in accordance with the truth. Why do you need knowledge alongside your love? Why do you need to abound in both? 
Because love seeks the good of the beloved. Does that make sense? If you're not seeking the good of someone, are you really loving them? You might have warm feelings toward them, but is it something that is seeking their good? Okay, love seeks the good of the beloved. And if you don't know what that good is, you, you can't do that. This is why Paul says in verse 10 that the reason he prays is so that the Philippians may approve what is excellent. We need to approve what is excellent. Our hearts, sinful as they are, are not prone to do this. Sin has distorted our hearts and minds so that by nature, we, we tend to approve of what is not excellent. We consent with and go with and are set on sinful tendencies and selfishness and covetousness and lust and greed and all manner of immorality. We need to approve what is excellent. We need to have our, our, our loves rightly directed toward what is, what is excellent. Our loves need to be rightly directed and rightly ordered by God's grace. And that's what Paul prays would happen. And if this happens, if by God's grace, working within us, we abound in love and knowledge and all discernment so that we are approving things that are excellent, then we will become, Paul says, pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The day is coming when our hearts, minds, and bodies will be free from every taint of sin. Jesus already removed the judicial taint that your sin has before God, but in our experience, sin still remains. There's still this corruption of nature so that the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit lusts against the flesh. As Paul says in Galatians 5, but the day is coming when every last ounce of wrong and sin within will be done away with and you will be holy, pure, and blameless. And when you picture that, you should not picture a kind of... Um, blank slate. Okay, so you had all this filth on you, like a window, maybe, you know, and then it's all wiped off, and then there's just kind of nothing there, and you're just kind of this transparent, blank, blah, nothing's there, really of note. It's as though your, your, your goal, your telos, is merely removal, removal of bad things, and now you're just this kind of clear, blank uh, picture. No, The picture that Paul gives here is not that we're pure and blameless because we used to have all this complex and interesting stuff and now it's all been done away with. No, we will be pure and blameless because we are full. Filled, Paul says. Filled with the fruit of righteousness. We're full. We're bursting at the seams with life and goodness, and joy, and love, and holiness, and light, and laughter, and praise. We will be full, Paul says, full of the fruit of righteousness. Fruit of righteousness. I think we inherently know what that means. It's talking about 
filled with righteous qualities. I think we all kind of understand it that way, and that is what it means, but he didn't say that, right? Paul didn't say filled with all righteous virtues. He didn't say filled with all righteous characteristics or full of righteous deeds and thoughts and desires. No, he says specifically full of righteous fruit, full of the fruit of righteousness. The righteousness and holiness, which will characterize your soul at the last day, are best pictured, at least in this sense, as fruit. Why? Because it's not something that you are ultimately the source of. It's not something that you uh, accomplished for yourself. You didn't make yourself righteous. Rather, your righteousness, even at that last day, is described as a fruit. It is a coming to fruition of God's work. God is the master gardener. He tills the hard ground of your heart and he plants the seed of his spirit within you, which grows and we feel his influence and it affects us even now, but it's not till then that it really blossoms into the fullness of what is intended, the fruits of the spirit growing and abounding in us without any taint of sin. We are filled with the fruit of God's work in us. And how does this come about? These little phrases here at the end, we shouldn't skip over them. We should think about them. How does this come about? Paul says, through Jesus Christ. At the last day, you will be pure and blameless, standing before God, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Paul says, right? That fruit of righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. Even on that day, when you are cleansed from all sin and defilement, when you are filled with the fullness of all righteousness, holiness, goodness that a creature can have, even then, you are what you are by the grace of God. Even then, your holiness, righteousness, your goodness is from another, from Jesus. It comes to you through Jesus. Christ himself is your righteousness before God. And he is the one who by his spirit works within you every good, righteous desire and thought. And he's the one who will have worked it in you then. You are, after all, Ephesians 2 says, his workmanship created in Christ for good works. Or here in Philippians 1 verse 6, he began the good work in you and he will bring it to completion. See, Jesus isn't your temporary savior. He isn't your savior for now until you're able to stand on your own two feet and you don't need him anymore. No, he is the rock of ages. It's not just now in this present life that we hide ourselves in him, but also in the words of the hymn that we will sing, when mine eyelids close in death, when I rise to worlds unknown and behold thee on thy throne, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. 
This Sunday, we give thanks to God for the Reformation. We thank him for the precious truths of his word and gospel, which were upheld then throughout the world, as well as in the uh, English church from which our church descends. But above all, we give thanks for the gospel of Christ himself. May we ever take refuge in him. Let us pray. Father, we praise you for your goodness. We praise you for, um, for the great truths of our salvation in Christ, apart from our works and deservings, only by faith. Lord, may we rejoice. May we know the, the thanksgiving that comes from the confidence of our salvation in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.